You are listening to Under This Light, a revelation of Shakespeare and self, brought to you by Seattle Shakespeare Company. I am your host, Lamar Legend. Today we have Rosa Josie. Rosa is a theater director, educator, and producer. She loves working on Shakespeare and has directed productions for Seattle Shakespeare Company. Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and the Folger Theater. She is currently on the faculty of Seattle University's theater program where she teaches directing and theater history. As a founding member of Upstart Crow Collective, a theater company that produces classical plays with diverse all-female and non-binary casts, she is committed to reimagining classical texts for the 21st century. I am happy to bring to the show today Rosa. Hello. Can I always have you read my bio like that? <laughs> I am happy to do it. I will, I, I will record it for I you and you like, can just play it. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. You make me sound so fun. Because <laughs> you do, because you are. Um, so the way we do this, we always go back to the beginning. So um, will you tell us how... How did your relationship with theater begin? Theater. Oh, we're going way back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oh, you know, the very first play I was ever in was a really racist play. <laughs> it was. Oh, my God. It was. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was in the equivalent of, I want to say it was first grade. Um, and. We did uh, the little black sambo, you know, spinning into butter. Oh my gosh! Wow. Right? Okay, 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 okay. So uh, I knew nothing because what was I six, seven years old? And for I was, sure. a, I was a tiger. I was one of the tigers. So let's let's give this context um, for our listeners. Um, first of all, where were you location-wise on a map? And then also, will you explain? Um, uh, uh, tell us the plot of and the history of this. I was in Scotland because um, I grew up um, partly in the UK and Scotland until I was about 10. Um, and, uh, th- you know, what I remember is little black Sambo goes out. He's on his way home or something. He runs into the these different tigers. He, he spins into... It's the spinning into butter. I do not actually remember. I just remember thinking about it later, you know, and thinking, whoa, I was in the, I had no idea what I was doing, right? Oh, actually, before that, it's all coming back to me, Lamar. The first thing I was in was telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, I was the narrator. We did these... This was in this was in Liverpool before I went to Scotland. So that was actually the first thing. Well, uh-huh. I have not thought about this in a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first. I, and uh, it, yeah, we told parables out of the Bible, and I go, "How is that possible?" But somehow in my school, that was the play. It was the school play, and I remember actually being really. Um, pleased because I I had I was the narrator like I got to read the story but I look back and I go oh I also just thought I was Christian until I was almost nine because 
I didn't really understand that I wasn't Christian because everything and everyone around me was Christian. Right, um, right. And I remember thinking that my parents were maybe going to hell because I knew that they worshipped idols at home because my parents are Hindu. Uh. So, like, yeah, I had a, a very confused uh, or, or just complicated relationship with culture. The story of, of the little black sambo, um, you I believe it's part of, yeah. no, 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 I, I remember. It's part of a collection, I believe, of books by, um, is her name Banner? Hold on. Now I'm going to look it up. Helen. I'm looking yeah, it up ba- too. He- Helen Bannerman. So the, the story is that this little black boy is got all of his is supposed to go and get, uh, take his ghee someplace, I think to market or something like that. Yeah. And he runs into these four very hungry tigers who are going to eat him. Um, and he gets out of his like clothes because he's like nicely dressed or whatever. And they become, yes. and they're like really vain. They're really like, we want to wear your clothes. And so then they, right. they get into a big fight. The four tigers get into a big fight because uh, they think that one is. They think that one is better dressed than the other, or something like and then that. They, that. They they run around the tree. They are running around a tree really, mm-hmm. really fast, mm-hmm. and they spin they into turn, into ghee, yes. into butter. Yeah, yeah. They they become reductive, reducted into butter, <laughs> and then the boy runs home and and makes pancakes or something like that. I believe. Yeah. So I don't know whether it's race, you know, like I have, it, it is right. Well, I just it remember it, it is, it is, it is, it's part of a racist cult, uh, racist history in, in that, yeah. that one, it's a, it was created by a, um, a white woman <laughs> who right. created these very, um, the pictures in the book are very, that's you know, what I remember. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it is, these are racist, um, uh, depictions. depictions. Of, yeah. Yeah. So you're not wrong. You're right on there. <laughs> but you were. This was your first introduction. One of your first introductions to theater. Yeah. You were a performer at six years old. Yeah. But then I, I didn't do very much after. After that, I until until really um, high school. So did you take to it? Like, what was it? First of all, how did you get? involved did you just do it because you were in a community you know because that where all the kids were doing it or were your parents like oh gosh she's just always on her feet we should do something with this energy or or did you see it those were just school plays right they were they were like one was in a class and one was for the yeah they were both in classes we were doing plays and so I did I did that um and then I really when I think about it, I didn't do anything again until high school. No, no, no. My parents did not put me in theater because that was culturally not a thing. Um, I was supposed to be a doctor. It was all about the sciences. And um, I actually asked 
to be, to do the play when I was in, I, I was 14, I think, or 15. And I asked and, you know, it was a deal because it was after school and somebody would have to pick me up. You know, it, it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a given part of my education or upbringing. Mm-hmm. So I came to it late, you know, no, I wasn't, I wasn't a theater kid. I wouldn't <laughs> describe myself that way. And I also, as a result, I never thought of myself as super creative. That was never something that was, um, that was praised in my family necessarily mm-hmm. to be creative was not something that was seen, you know, in fact, even when I became a theater artist and it took me a long time to think of myself as a creative person. I thought I was good at directing because I was analytical. Ah. You know, I thought, oh, okay. I didn't, it took me a, a long time to call myself an artist and to consider that I was a creative person. And I think that probably has to do with what was um valued and 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 I don't mean that in a bad way right like my parents were immigrants they were trying to make a life that was better yeah for their kids and that meant being in the sciences and mm-hmm. you know I was supposed to be a doctor so that you can support yourself and your family yeah and it was a respected profession and my father was a doctor and you know I I bet if there are listeners who are of south asian descent <laughs> They will relate to that idea that, of course, you're going to be a doctor if you can be a doctor. Like that is the, you know, that that's thought to be sort of, at least in my family, like the best thing you could be. now take us to high school so what how did you rekindle that relationship with theater uh I just uh I I auditioned for a play um and I had a small role and I just really um I really loved not performing necessarily, but being part of the community. Mm. Um, I was never like, I have to be on stage and performing and that, uh, but I really loved the uh, community or the, the, the sense of belonging to a tribe. Mm. Um, and then I was actually cast in um, a lead role Um in uh, Jean Anouilly's Antigone. Mm. So like, uh, it, it, yeah, I, I played Antigone. I was 15, all of 15 years old, which probably she was close to that age, that character. Yeah, I would yeah. say so. I was like, oh, that sounds right on the money. That's usually never the case. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and again, it was that sense of community and, you know, we made this, we built the sets in our high school and we did everything. And, um, and, uh, so, yeah, so, uh, you know, I came into it through performance for sure. 
Uh, and then college is where wow. I, I was going to say. University is where I I really started to do a lot more theater. And again, it started in an extracurricular way. And I was like, I'll just do props or anything. You know, I was a little freshman and I was super intimidated. And um, I did props. I did costumes. I did a lot of stuff. Um, and then I took a directing class. And I was like, oh, this is, I think, this is what I'm really interested in. And I think, but I do think that I didn't pursue performance partly because I didn't, I was, um, I didn't see anyone that looked like me in the plays, right? Mm-hmm. I, and we did plays like um, Cat in a Hot Tin Roof and mm-hmm. Crimes of the Heart. And I was like, nobody told me not to audition, right? But, mm-hmm. I looked at it and go thought to myself, well, I can't be anybody's mother or sister or daughter. Mm. And so I thought, well, I, I just won't, I won't audition. I, di- I didn't audition. I'm, I don't regret not being a performer, right? Um, but I've, it's always sort of stayed with me because it was very much self um it was, I internalized, right? It was internalized depression. Right, right. We all do I internalized it. what I was seeing in the culture around me. Nobody said, don't come and audition outright, right? Yeah. But I was like, I, oh, I can't audition for that. And I didn't actually think like, hey, why are there no plays for me? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? I didn't have the agency at that age, at that time in my life to think that and so I it makes me makes me really happy that my students you know I teach at Seattle University and my my students want to know where the roles are for them you know and I and that is progress right that is progress there's also more representation available to them now than yeah. there was for you yeah that's you know very much part of it now I'm really glad I became a director and I I um I didn't really want to be a performer. Like, it's not like I lost a dream or something, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it it has always stayed with me. because, And it has stayed with me because I think, okay, I know if I felt that way, there are a lot of other people that felt that way. And there are people today who feel that way, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you think that... I mean, well, you know, also it sounds like that what you did do, even though you didn't have, you said you didn't have the agency then, you know, to be like, hey, why aren't these roles available? Or why aren't they telling these stories? You know, and I can, so that I can see myself in them. You get, had the agency and the wherewithal and the fortitude and also the, you know, a bit of inner genius to go like, well, directing i can be a visionary of and a conceptualist on how to reframe these stories and you've made your life about that yeah you know interestingly the one show that i did do in college that i was main stage show was uh hamlet was a shakespeare um and i was the player queen Hmm. um because for some reason in my head, I was like, well, I can be in that. Because I think probably I had seen, you know, um, 
non-traditional, as they called it, casting, you know, in Shakespeare plays. So there mm-hmm. was that. And so, um, and directing was this way in which I could occupy all the spaces, <laughs> if that makes sense. Oh, like the spaces that weren't av- available to me, perhaps in, in how I present in the world, I could def- I could still occupy those spaces as a director and have an effect on the story as a director. So I think, yeah, I think being able to see, being able to carve a place for yourself however you can. I don't know. It's also, I just really loved it, Lamar. (laughs) I think I just, you know, I don't think I was like, oh, I'll do this because I can't, you know, do what I really want. I just fell in love with directing. Mm. Um, so I think definitely I found my passion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, we'll, we'll get to Shakespeare. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so taking us back, um, you mentioned that there was, uh, what you, you also fell in love with was community, was the community of the theater. Um, was that because you came from a family that was huge, where there was also a sense of community and tribe, or was there a lack of it, a dearth of it, so that it you gravitated towards? Like how, where did that gravity, that attraction um, to the to the community aspect of theater um, begin? Like where did, how did that happen? That's a great question. I think it's a sense of belonging because I never felt like I belonged when I was growing up because mm-hmm. I was the kid of immigrants, we were living in England, there was a lot of um, pretty much outright racism, you know, like there was, um, I like to say there was nothing micro about it and nothing latent about it. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty macro and pretty blatant. Um, And so uh, I've always, I think that has definitely defined um, who I am as a person is the sense of of understanding um, what it is to be an outsider, what it is, and what it is to be other, right? Mm-hmm. What it is to be other is something that I've uh, always experienced and always kept, even when I've belonged. Now, and theater is a place where I found that I uh, was gave me a sense of belonging. The first place, I think, mm-hmm. that where I really felt that sense of belonging. Let's take us back to Shakespeare. So you mentioned Hamlet was something well, you played Hamlet. I played <laughs> no, no, you the played player the queen. player queen, right? The yeah. player queen. So sorry. And so, um, but you had experience with Shakespeare before. You you kind of casually mentioned that you had seen um, Shakespeare uh, productions, or Shakespeare had been an area in which. Um, even though you may not have been represented, you had more freedom to play whoever you wanted, or more people did uh, in yeah. terms of cast. Yeah. So when did you? When were you introduced to Shakespeare? Like, what could you? Can you remember like the first time you um, were introduced to a Shakespeare play? Yeah, it was middle school, equivalent of middle schools. I was in. It was while I was in Kuwait, and it was part of the curriculum. And we worked on The Tempest, and 
really uh, learned that play um, in class for a couple years. And I had, you know, I had a really great teacher. And I think this, I think, you know, I'm teaching a, 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 it's not a Shakespeare class, it's an acting three class right now in um, at Seattle U. And we were actually just talking about this at in the first class, like, how did you come across Shakespeare? And, it, you know, of course, a lot of us came across it as part of the curriculum. And it's fascinating to me how a teacher can make all the difference in your experience at that age with Shakespeare. And I happen to have a really fantastic teacher, Phil Clymer, who, um, you know, we read the plays out loud. We did scenes. Um, I got to see him in a production of The Tempest. He played Ferdinand, I think, that was being produced somewhere. And so that sort of approach to the text as something that was living and that uh, lived in in our bodies and in space and in time, I think really drew me to the work, right? Because of course, um, it was it was not easy to understand otherwise outside of that. Um, but I just I kind of fell in love with Shakespeare as you know of I must have been like fourteen. <laughs> What a perfect age. <laughs> and yeah, and so, but I, and I took a lot of classes in, um, in university at, uh, I took, you know, I, I took a Shakespeare class. I took a Shakespeare and film class. So I, I, I took a lot of English analytical classes, literature classes, um, and then I was in that Hamlet, but I just felt like, oh, I can't really do this. Because I felt like, I don't know why, actually. Well, I do. I felt like I didn't know enough to do these plays, like to actually, to to work on them. I felt like, oh, they're too hard. They're, people who know a lot more than me know how to do this, and I don't. And... I think um, it's really interesting to me because I I took a, a so an advanced acting class and um, I chose Greek plays because I was like I can't do that Shakespeare thing somehow thinking that Greek plays were going to be easier <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> like I'll one, do a Greek play as a cl- my classical play because that's going to be easier than Shakespeare right ah uh, you. <laughs> um, but that's how intimidated I was by the mm. thought of doing Shakespeare. And um, wh- when did that change for you? Because clearly you've become a champion. Yeah, you know, I, I think so. I I was a uh, out of out of undergrad. I got an internship at um, as a stage manager actually at the Juilliard School, and so then I was, which was doing, you know, Juilliard was a place of, of classical work, uh, very much so. And so then I was in rehearsal watching people do the work and watching directors and actors, and I just started to just listen and and picking 
started to pick up stuff that way and and realized I really really want to know how to do this and I really love this so I started to um to just self-educate if that makes sense I just started to try and find out as much as I could mm. um I I assisted a director off at um theater for a new audience yes is that Theater for a new theater for a new audience. Oh yeah. Um, I worked on a production. I was an assistant director on a production of Romeo and Juliet. That was directed by um, Bill Alexander, who was an RSC director. And I just remember I would just ask him questions afterwards. Like I didn't I I, I didn't know from iambic pentameter at this point. Still right. Mm-hmm. Like I I, I and. This is something I, I talk to um, my students about also is that I, th- I think sometimes we're intimidated by this language, we're intimidated by the work because we think there's some, because we don't have access to technique, <laughs> right? We're intimidated because we think, oh, there are people who can do this, who know how to do this, and it's not us. And it's too hard, or it's and, and it's it's just about demystifying technique. We're going to shift gears, or we're going to leap into the future a little bit. Will you tell us about the genesis of Upstart Crow? Yeah. Well, the. The origin myth um, <laughs> is actually um, is not does not belong to me. It belongs to Kate Wisniewski and Betsy Schwartz. So, um, so the way I was introduced is they came to me and asked me if I would direct and if I was interested in directing an all female production of a Shakespeare play, and. Um, Nobody was asking me to direct Shakespeare plays. I mean, I had a full-time job as, as at a university. I had two small kids. I also wasn't asking anybody, will you let me direct a Shakespeare play? Um, but the, how it had originated for them is that they had been doing a show together at TAG, Tacoma Actors Guild, which sadly no longer exists, and they'd been driving down and they had been bemoaning the fact that there were so few roles for women, you know, in any season, any given season, right, of a, of a Shakespeare company. You know, they were auditioning for the same four roles, mm-hmm. right? And they never got to be in place together, or rarely so. So, and I think Seattle Shakespeare Company had done um, an all-male a Taming of the Shrew. So I, I, what I think is so fantastic is that, you know, instead of just saying, oh, this sucks and complaining and leaving it there, they said, well, let's do something about this. And they decided, let's produce, let's produce an all-female production. And so... They they uh, took agency again. Um, that word that I think is so important for artists. You know, like oh, it doesn't exist. Okay, let me do something about that, and and make it so right. And and I'd always like my background is um, I 
produced my own work before. Again, no one's hiring you as a director, so you just make your own work, right? Um, so we did King John as a, an equity member's project code, um, which is this co- project code of equity allows uh, members to produce their own work. Um, and everybody worked, you know, for a split of the box office. And we uh, uh, we got incredible actors to be in the show because there was a real hunger for the work, right? For the opportunity. Um, and that, uh, when we first did it, we had no idea what it was going to be like, right? <laughs> it was an experiment. Like, um, I didn't. I didn't necessarily have an agenda of, uh, I knew that it was going to be interesting and I've always, I think, um, had a feminist approach to work, whether I've been aware of it or not. Um, and so I, that was always going to be there. Um, but I was really curious to see what would happen and it was fascinating to see women take on power and it was fascinating to see how uh, how male behavior stood out in a completely different way because there were a bunch of women on stage portraying men if that makes sense like some there are parts we do a lot of the history plays Mm. um and there are parts where I sort of label that, you know, what's going on in the scene. And, and it's amazing to me how often I write cock strutting, like they're just, <laughs> cock that's what these men are doing. Right. Um, and, and when women perform gender, right. Cause the other thing that um, became really clear was the perf- performativity of gender um, and how we're, What's interesting about the way that we uh, look at gender in Shakespeare is that we we don't play um, in drag. We that's something that we say. We don't. I I don't talk to the actors about okay, you're you're playing a man now, so lower your voice and walk a certain way. And we talk about instead what who the character is. So we always start from a place of. playing the character as honestly and authentically as possible. But what we do talk about is what it means to be socialized to be male in the world. What it means to have grown up with a certain kind of privilege and uh, with an expectation uh, that you can take up a certain amount of space. And, you know, I'll, I'll often say, like, what would it be like if you had been raised to believe that your opinion always mattered. That the things that, that people would listen to you. Mm. And that has that is the shift that I find um, un, that unlocks character for women and non-binary people because we expanded from being all female in the last... I, I, I want to say it's been in the last six years to including um, non-binary people also um, in our cast. Who I am in the room with 
uh, a bunch of women and non-binary people working on Shakespeare is so different than who I was in the room when I was mostly in a room with men. I would be one of three or four women. Talk Um, about that. It was just the way it was supposed to, not the way it was supposed to be. This is just the way it was, Lamar, right? Like if I wanted to work on these plays, I had accepted, again, like I I had thought when I was younger, well, that's not for me. I was like, okay, I want to work on these plays. I'm going to have to be in these rooms. And it's it just seemed very normal to me. And it wasn't until I worked on um, King John with Upstart Crow that I realized, oh, wow, wait a second. You've been acting like you have no agency or control or, or power. And actually, you're a director and yes, you're a director for hire, but if, as a producer, you actually can change the space and you perhaps have a responsibility to change the space. I mean, mm. what the heck are you doing mm. just accepting the space as it is and perpetuating the space? So it was sort of like um, holding myself accountable and saying, oh, actually, you're a gatekeeper, just as much as anyone else in this in this field. Um, now, that's not to be super harsh on myself because I was just trying to get work, right? I was just right. trying to be seen, and I was just trying to prove that I could do this work as well as any other white man out there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when I changed that, who was in the space, I realized how different I was. Mm. space so how did you start showing up uh i started not to worry as much about my authority in the space about proving my authority in the space i found that i didn't have to as much wow i didn't have to like you know what I didn't have to go into a room and go, uh, okay, where are the threats? Where are the threats? I know mm. where the threats are. Okay, I'm ready for those threats. I mean, it's probably something that a lot of people can relate to and a lot of artists of color can relate to and women and women of color, right? Like you you, you go in and you're like, okay, I know, okay, this person or uh, might question my authority or my knowledge or these kinds of things might come at me. So how am I going to be prepared for that? And it's not even conscious necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We just carry that with us. But when I was in a space where I didn't have that as much, I was like, oh, oh, this is a way that I can be. And then I started to think, well, this is great. Why uh, is it that I can only be this person in this space? Actually, what would happen if I took this person and said, actually, I get to be this person in every space, (laughs) right? I'm going to like, what if I go in and with what I've, with what this space has given me, I now can take that out into the world. and. and be that person elsewhere. And uh, what would it be like if I decided not to expect a threat? Not like that it's not there, but just not be like, 
have have that extra weight and just go in like fully holding the confidence of who I am and what I can do mm. and what I bring. And now, to excite your curiosity, and in the spirit of infusing the world with more joy, I present to you some magic questions. If you could master one skill that you don't already have, what would that be? I would be a dancer. I would full on, if I could like just, if you could turn me into a dancer, like with incredible physical skills, that's what I would be. Wow. Why is that? Why dance? I always wanted to dance when I was a kid. Um, I really wanted to take dance lessons, ballet lessons. And my mother, she'll, she'll often, she'll say, I'm so sorry. I couldn't do that. You know, she couldn't take me to, to lessons. She couldn't take me, uh, we couldn't afford them probably. And she literally couldn't take me. She couldn't drive, you know, so I never got to, and it's always been something that, um, I've, I've loved. And I've thought like, oh, if I could, if, if, if I could do anything or if I could have been something like I, I, I don't think I wanted to be an, a, a, an actor, but I, I think I might have loved being a dancer. Hmm. Okay. Uh, will you tell us about a time when you saved a life? Well, I literally saved a life once, but I don't think I want to talk about that, honestly. That's um, totally fine. Yeah, I think, you know, for their privacy. Privacy, um, oh, for yeah, sure. you know what I mean? Um, time when I saved a life, let me think about this. Okay, well, I'll answer the question this way. I mean, I don't know whether this is about saving someone's physical life. But I have had um, two artists say to me, one who, uh, one who said seeing the work of Upstart Crow made them realize that there was, was a place for them in Shakespeare. And so I feel like perhaps somehow I may have saved a creative life because they felt that they could be seen and that they could belong in uh, an art form that they loved. That's absolutely true. I believe that. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> um, so um, open your imagination, if you will. We're about to go into the future. Coming out of the pandemic, theater sees a renaissance. Like, as it turns out, our hopes were uh, were founded. You know mm -hmm. that people actually want to be together now because they can. Um, and music festivals are huge. People are packing theaters when before the pandemic, you know, um, ticket prices were going down in terms of cinema attendance and in and live theater performances of plays and musicals are achieving rock star status. Upstart Crow in this becomes wildly successful, so much so that the collective becomes the first theater company to grace the cover of Rolling Stone. <laughs> and you have celebrities, celebrities like Kate Blanchett 
and Uzo Aduba begging to become company members. But on one night, you receive a frighteningly real visit from the ghost of Will Shakespeare. I mean, it is so real that if you told this to anyone, no one would believe you. And in this vision, this visit, he only says this to you. Stop this, or I will take it from the world. What do you do? Oh, it was clearly my psyche, just like, you know, your dreams or your wishes and fears. That that was totally my my fear dream. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> this is where my psycho- I'm, I'm just going to do a, do a side pass on this and just yeah. give it the old Freudian. That was my that was my fear speaking. I don't. I would be like that. Definitely was not a real visit. That was <laughs> me manifesting my fear through the 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 spirit of William Shakespeare because I don't think uh, he would say that. Mm. I, I just that. I just refuse to believe that the person who could imagine these worlds would want to keep anyone from doing the work from being from being in the work, right? Um I think I think uh he, I think that person would want this to reach as many people. I mean, he was an, he was also, uh, like if, if we believe some of those, the sonnets and something, right? Like he, he thought quite a bit of himself too. So wouldn't he want Mm -hmm. as many people to like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be thrilling to think, oh, look what, look what they did. We Mm -hmm. did it with all men and now women are doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Women and, non, you know, and women and people who don't even identify as any gender are doing it. Mm-hmm. Look, what, look what's happening. That's that's what I, I, I would think. I don't think I, I would think, oh, that's just your fear talking as an artist. And um, because. uh We sh- everyone should get to do this work if they want to, is what I believe, Lamar. I also believe that you don't have to want to do this work, and that is totally fine. I don't <laughs> think that Shakespeare, I don't actually think that Shakespeare is the be-all and the end-all of everything that is um, excellent or that is that proves that you have arrived as an artist or that is that tells the holistic and whole experience of humanity. I actually don't think that. I think it's a very Western way of telling stories. And that is my education and my, you know, cultural background. Um, I was raised in the West. And so these stories speak to me, um, as as stories of, of humanity, but they are a very specific humanity, right? Um, and so I don't actually think that these plays 
have to be for everyone, but I do think they can be for everyone. And that's a, I think that's a very important distinction. I believe that everyone should be welcome into them and should be able to find themselves in it if they want to, right? That, that, um, we should welcome everybody into these plays, but I don't think I think the worst thing we can do is tell everyone that this is what they should love. Mm. Why? Why do we insist upon that? Mm-hmm. I don't think that's. I think you should love whatever kind of art you love. I happen to love Shakespeare, and I would like to welcome as many people into the work as possible because. Part of being an artist for me is sharing my passion with people and and welcoming them into that passion. Um, So I kind of sidestepped your question, perhaps, but that's just my own stubbornness. I would refuse to believe it. Oh, I don't think you sidestepped it at all. Like these, these questions are up for interpretation. And what I love about that answer, that was a beautiful answer. Um, is that you just called bullshit. <laughs> like, like <laughs> I would have done the same. No, 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 no. I mean, no lie. I would have called bullshit. I would have been like, you're not the ghost. No, no. Right. There's no such, I don't, I believe, I actually believe in spirits, but I would have been like, that's not it. That's not it. I know my own shadow and that is the face of it. That's all that right. is. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I, I would have just said that is a manifestation of my own anxiety. And I don't need to listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, final question. When you die, because we all will, if people forget Oh, way to go dark on me, Lamar. Okay, oh, go no, ahead. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> So if people forget everything about you, what's the one thing you want them to remember? Oh, man. Um, you know, it's interesting. I would, l- people, people, that's a, like a very general thing, right? Um, That assumes that people, that the larger public would care. And I guess like, I I really, what I would, what I would want to be remembered for, I'd I'd want my children to remember me and remember their mother and remember, uh, and hopefully remember me as uh, someone who did their best as their mother. I think that would be really the thing that I think about the most is the people who I would want to be remembered by the people I loved and who loved me. That's great. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Lamar. This was fun. for listening to Under This Light, a revelation of Shakespeare and self, 
The series is a project of Seattle Shakespeare Company. If you enjoyed this discussion and would like to learn more about Seattle Shakespeare Company's productions and programs, please visit seattleshakespeare.org. We'd love to hear from you. Seattle Shakespeare is located on lands taken from the Duwamish, Stillaguamish, Muckleshoot, Suquamish, and all Coast Salish people, and we pay respect to them as this region's original storytellers. The music you hear in this episode is provided and composed by Stefan Dorsey. Artwork for our series was created by Marla Bonner. I'm host and producer Lamar Legend, and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. So, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Give us your hands if we be friends, and Lamar shall restore amends. <laughs>